Welcome to iPodcast Magic Missile, where we play games and talk geek. Broadcasting every week from the New River Valley in the beautiful mountains of Southwest Virginia, we bring you audio from some of the most exciting games, new and old. No actual wizard spells here, just actual play from great games. This is iPodcast Magic Missile. Like it's time for another story time with Blake and High Cove. Well, well, it's I, a good thing you were the announcer for the first one because yeah. now we have continuity. It's true. I want to uh, say that I really appreciate the, the uh, Mr. Silver accent because I think that some people, some people, don't understand that a southern accent isn't just an accent. It's not even just an accent and a personality. It's an entire universe. <laughs> A very close-minded, small universe that is exceptionally skilled at expelling other universes from its domain. <laughs> but if you if you put it in there, in a place that people don't expect, like, say, a werewolf. <laughs> I had some players walk up to a werewolf. Uh, actually, they thought he was a gnoll until this moment. Aww. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I was like, oh, really? He was a werewolf? No, nope. you just forgetting it wrong. He was a were hyena. Ah. But he made a point of talking like this, and everybody's like, oh, good, it's going to be this. And he's like, I am actually the smartest villain you all have in this campaign. <laughs> he was which campaign at was least this? until Mister Wingtips. This is the wrath of the cosmic accountant. I oh. made him a knoll, and then I thought, but a knoll. The players will punch it, and he will explode into a fine mist. <laughs> a were-hyena is much harder to kill. And the first time the players hit him, and he ignores eight damage, he's like, now nah, what? They're like, oh, jeez. Wait, we hit him? We made a terrible mistake. Nope. You never got that far, but I planned for it. Oh. <laughs> I planned everything in that campaign to be fought. I'm it sure was like Fallout, or Grand Theft Auto, or Mario Brothers. <laughs> Two. There are no allies. There are only things you pick up and throw at other people. Mario Brothers 2, yeah. Hello, friendly turnip. Hey there, friendly bomb. I see that you have eyes, which means you have a personality. A life of your own. But to me, you are simply an exploding projectile that I will use to hurt a large mouse. What is your name? <laughs> My name is Robert Omb. Um. That's nice. <laughs> Robert Omb. <laughs> I, I need to make a character named Robert Omb one day just to see if anyone else picks up on it. Don't worry, it won't be in a campaign you run. Oh, you should do it in that campaign I'm going to run. Was um Smash Brothers C listers. <laughs> Mr. Saturn. Exceptionally difficult to kill. I would allow that. I would allow someone to play Mr. Saturn. Laura's best idea was Farmer from Harvest Moon. I'm like, that's not a Nintendo character. She's like, frick. What about Mr. Rossetti? The little mole that gets angry and That would be very hard to play. Like I would play uh I would play like youngster. Yes. It's like catchphrase. I like shorts. They're comfy and easy to wear. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I summon my Rotata. Swarm! <laughs> number one on Rotata. Gotta catch yeah. a few. His Rotata's in the top percent. Gotta catch. Top percent of Rotata's. So, um, did we come up with a thing last time that we were going to talk about for this time? We came up with three. We have to... These are stories we tell, so we have to address it at some point or another. But we both have a bad campaign that we have a lot of good stories from. I have... You're going to have more specific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that we were in, not that we ran. Oh, okay. Because um, you've got the terrible, terrible, Dave's terrible, terrible Mistara campaign. Yeah. And I've got... <laughs> 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 and I've got um, 
Nate's, uh, like, everybody is super pretentious campaign, the pretentious NPC campaign. Oh, the, uh, <laughs> the FF, I guess, school of NPCs, wherein all NPCs are designed to be so annoying that the players will stop interacting with them, so that I have to stop, de- I get to stop designing them. Wow. It wasn't they were designed, it was that they were, it wasn't the designing of the NPCs, it was the, ed- the, the operation of the NPCs. Um, there was a specific moment in my first campaign where Blake asked an NPC, where are we supposed to go? And the NPC raised up a giant staff and started hopping around on one foot. And Blake is like, oh good, another <laughs> campaign of this. <laughs> and he hopped around for about six seconds and said, that way, because I only know one voice. And Blake is like, ah, oh, I do not want another campaign of this. And I'm like, okay, guy sitting next to uh, Blake, or in fact, every other human, roll any skill. I don't freaking care. Preferably spellcraft, or like, spellcraft. That's a component for no direction, which is a spell. And it's just funny. <laughs> and for 15 years, my NPCs have been funny. Which is impressive, because I've only been running for nine. <laughs> well, I guess, you know what, maybe we maybe we should go ahead and do this story then. Um, okay, be more specific. No, the, 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 the bad campaign story. Because you actually said a number of things during that example that segue nicely into the... Uh, I, I really wish I could remember the name of the campaign, because it definitely had a name. This campaign uh, could just be as easily be described as the first, or I guess it was technically the second God RPG Club campaign. This was before High Cove came to Tech, um, when uh, me and my roommate at the time uh, were like, "Hey," or I was like, "Hey, I've played D and D at all. Uh, let me see. I, here I am, a freshman at college. Uh, let me see if this is an activity that I can engage in while at college." Uh, and we found this club. So we showed up for one of their meetings, and it turned out that this was the second semester of the club's existence. It had been founded entirely by one playgroup from the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. Um, So, like, you know, these guys don't have a lot of spare time being cadets, but they... But who's um, going to tell them what to play? So, anyway, they... um, and had, they'd run one campaign fairly successfully with, like, the six of them. Uh, but this time around, you know, they had the, they'd had websites set up as a, as a student organization. And Josh and I showed up along with 11 other people, not counting the DM, mm-hmm. whose girlfriend was a centaur. I remember that. <laughs> um, that was the campaign in which I played Riker Short Pump, Greatsword Fighter. My roommate played uh, Garrett... Pipefield Halfling Rogue. And we were a two-man, like, team of jerks. Because I wasn't just, like, I wasn't, you know, a classic, like, knight in shining armor type of fighter. I was a thug. Just so we're clear, every campaign those two had together, they were a two-man group of jerks. Yeah, I was thinking about felonious uh, and misdemeanorious. Misdemeanious, yeah. Oh, oh, don't get me started on Gary Smasher Stubblefeld and Lucian Taylor, who was also a tailor. The Smashers I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't have waited until you were drinking. <laughs> Anyway. I thought the Gary was in quotes. I'd like for people to call me Gary. Why? Well, it's a long story. Anyway. the um, So this campaign uh, had all the earmarks of a terrible campaign. So we started off in what seemed like a city in the middle of a vast green field. Uh, and we were given a mission by an old wizard with a long gray beard and a gray pointy hat. Uh who was apparently, like, ten levels higher than us, or something like that. Like, it was, from time to time, we would subvert the rails that the DM had intended for us to follow, and our wizard, who, I really cannot remember his name, but he was run by the DM. 
would cast some DM caveat spell to neatly snap us back to the grid. Uh, I remember the first session quickly descended into a vehement argument between... Uh, there were a couple of those, you know, classic self-important D&D characters in it where, like, they felt like their character had to be the main character. Uh, one of them was playing a, a spy, like a secret agent for a powerful foreign elf government. The rest of the party did not get to know these facts, however. To us, he was just way too mysterious and always stood apart from the rest of the group. Usually in some kind of shadow with, like, great mood lining on his eyes and that kind of thing. The other guy was half-dragon. I remember him describing himself to us because he wore, like, a mask and stuff, so we couldn't see his scaly skin to perceive that he was half-dragon. Half-dragons have scouts, so it would just be like having a Deku mask at the end of a snout. (laughs) (laughs) But he made a point of describing his eyes as ice blue. So Is Josh, that where that came from? Yes. <laughs> so Josh and I uh, called him Winterfresh. <laughs> and that was uh, that was his moniker for the rest of the campaign. It really got on his nerves. I'm trying to remember what the other guy's, what the Elfin's secret agent's name was. Because we never called him that either. I want to say we called him by a letter. Like his name, like he, he didn't want to tell us his name, so he just told us to call him L. Or something like that. No, no, no. no. Call him M instead. No, no, no. It wasn't that. It was that we rolled his name into other people's names. Well, anyway, bottom line. We're having a little aside in the middle. It turns out it was just Jake. (laughs) So the point is, um, there are these two guys, and they're both like alpha personalities, and they think the campaign is about them and everyone else. All other 11 people are supporting characters to them. Um, and I'm not going to lie, Josh and I are kind of like supporting characters, because we were certainly the comic relief. Uh, so anyway, we, the wizard leads us out of the, uh, out of this city, and we cross some fields, very, very Lord of the Rings style, until we get to a hole in the ground. I got the impression it was just a perfectly round hole in the grass, like a, like a giant, like a very large well. And we had to get down this hole to go to this, like, subterranean place to do whatever our mission we were trying to do was. And, uh, we had a centaur. So, you know, climbing. So we sat there talking about it for a really long time. Maybe it felt longer because we were young and impatient. Um, But there was a lot of bickering back and forth over exactly how this was going to work. Whether we could somehow avoid going subterranean. I think that using magic to burrow or levitate was discussed at some point. But it was going to be a thing where they like went back to town to shop for a scroll of flight. Because our super powerful wizard didn't actually happen to have that down the front of his pants at the moment. Or something along those lines. Anyway, uh, while they were arguing, the elf secret agent decided to just, you know, screw these guys in their bickering. I'm just going to crawl down this hole solo by myself. Uh, and while everyone else was continuing to argo, uh, argue, um, Garrett and Riker looked at each other and were like, you know what? That city, even though it's somehow in the middle of the field, is also a coastal city. So we walked back to the coastal city. We walked onto the pier where there were boats. And we just picked up like 600 feet of rope like we owned it and walked off. We look like guys who own 600 feet of rope, so nobody particularly bothered to question that. Like, oh, look, it's a huge guy dressed like a sailor carrying a huge spool of rope and a little halfling behind him telling him what to do. We have no problem accepting this situation. So we walked back, tied the centaur up on a big rope, used the strength of the other ten people, which was, yes, enough to lift a horse, uh, to lower her to the bottom of the well, so we knew the campaign was off to a great start. That was session one. 
How did the terrible, terrible Mistara campaign start? Character creation. <laughs> <laughs> character creation. I don't know if this was a Mistara thing or if this was a terrible, terrible Mistara campaign thing, but character creation seemed designed to be unlikable. So you have seven cooler races. Tiny people, tiny people with bigger noses, taller people, pretentious tiny people, half-pretentious tiny people, stocky people, and people with teeth. Well, half of those were straight-out banned. You just could not play a gnome. It's not allowed in Mistara, or at least in this part of Mistara. True facts, T-R-U-F-A-X. Uh, you also can't play a half-orcs because orcs are for stabbing, not for friending. And you can play a dwarf, but they want nothing besides digging. So if you play one, your character will be all about, man, you know what I wish I was doing? Not D&D. It's like, that doesn't sound interesting. Okay, so what can we play? Halfling? Elf? Slightly less interesting elf? Humming. Because definitely my first idea was, I want to play a gnomish accountant. <laughs> I would also be a wizard. But the point is that my actual profession was accountant. They're like, no, banned. I'm like, okay, well, can I play a dwarf? No. But you didn't even let me finish. That's right. So I'm like, okay, fine. We need a healer, because I picked last. Um, so, what deities are worth anything in Mistara? Unlikable, unlikable, unlikable and loving it, unlikable, the old gods. Fine. So, okay, I'll play the old religion. What is the old religion? You worship spheres of influence. Vaguely defined spheres. There are five of them, but we're not going to tell you what they are. I'm like, I'm just going to worship all of them. Okay, so can I be a cleric of those? No, because they don't actually grant power. Interesting. Okay, so I guess I'm a druid. So that was how we got Elanel, half-elf druid. First session, we were all sitting around, we looked around and said, okay, so who do we have? We have the fighter, we have the rogue, we have the bard, we have the illusionist, we have the uh, druid. Okay, that's like a party. This is still salvageable. It's like, okay, you all start in a bar. It's like, okay, maybe it's not. <laughs> Y'all start in a bar and you hear someone screaming outside. And we look around and go, well, there are five of us. Apparently we're at a table sharing stories. Let's all get up as one cohesive unit and run outside. And a woman said, well, I don't know, we ended up in the sewer. <laughs> I don't remember what the story was. I'm not convinced the DM thought it through. But I do remember, this is where we have this story. Where we're going through the sewer... Fantasy sewer. Big, open. You don't have to necessarily slog through filth unless you really want to or have a boat. Um, like a Ninja Turtles. Or you're incredibly tall and you just can't stand on the sides. And he said, you make it to a crossroads in the sewer. Just go with it. And in the middle is a ziggurat. <laughs> <laughs> and our fighter, I remember him looking, uh, well, looking at it and saying, really? A ziggurat? We're like, yeah. How big is it? About 20 feet tall. That's really big for a ziggurat. We're like, that's not really big for a ziggurat, but that is really big for a sewer. Even a fantasy sewer. How wide is this ziggurat? Just, I don't know, 50 feet wide? That seems awfully... What is it doing here? How did it get here? And somewhere around here, I remember turning to the fighter and going, What do you think a ziggurat is? <laughs> that isn't a candy bar? That's a zagnut. <laughs> what's what's a ziggurat? It's like a stepped pyramid. Well, that doesn't make more sense. <laughs> so we wandered into this ziggurat, and we're there. Giant expanse. It's like a doom level. You think, okay, so there are so many different ways to go, but no one to shoot yet. So we split up, which was apparently our fault. Because half of us went into a room where there was treasure. 
Half of us went into a room where there was not. There was a session designed for six players as the bard and the druid wander in. Now, we already weren't terribly happy about splitting up, but we kind of had to because we made it into the sewer and then spent a solid 30 minutes at a crossroad deciding whether to go left or right. What looks left? It's just uh, it's a cave that turns slightly up ahead, out of the range of your vision. All right, well, what's right? Well, it's the same thing. All right, do I hear anything on either side? No. Do I smell anything on either <laughs> side? No. A half hour at the in-game table passed. We ended up going left, fighting a spider. We're like, fine. Went right, we found a ziggurat. So we're like, okay. So splitting up was probably the better way to do this. So Another we're split up. Ziggurat? We're like, hmm? Another ziggurat? Same ziggurat. Uh, so he ran around to before the ziggurat. Uh, I'm explaining why we hated each other. And the DM already. <laughs> we, we hadn't made it to the end of the first session yet. So I'm like, I cast this spell. The DM's like, I've never heard of that spell. You can't have it. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so instead with my turn, I guess I'll... Defend? It didn't work. That might have been the first time my animal companion died. <laughs> I had a snake named Skazia. Because it sounded like something a snake would say. Or write on a birth certificate. <laughs> and I'm like, snake! Yo! <laughs> Alright? Balls! <laughs> and we all got knocked unconscious. And then, I guess, somewhere over on the other side of the ziggurat, I don't know, the rest of the party picked up on our Jimmy Olsen signal watch. And ran to our rescue, beat up everything else. And so we're there, we're being revived, and by revived I mean, like, carried and strung up like Weekend at Bernie's, because the bard and the druid have the party's only healing. Carried back to the surface, I think we did something in the sewer that we were supposed to do? I don't know, it's all kind of vague. We get out of this, like, alright, well, we nearly all die, and the DM was like, well, you shouldn't have split up. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have given us only crossroads with no discerning characteristics. <laughs> And that was the first session of the Terrible, Terrible Mastara campaign. It occurs to me that actually... Ah, she was on the other face now. (laughs) It occurs to to me that uh, thinking about that uh, thinking about that 13 member that 13 person party campaign that we actually had a lot of good stories from that campaign because that was the uh, the campaign with the doctor in it. Not not, not the not uh, the Time Lord doctor. I don't remember what his last name was. I know that by class he was a rogue, because as a person with knowledge of anatomy, he was able to harm people more. But he was like, and he wasn't really, uh, but you know, as a doctor, he, we sort of looked to him to be the party healer. He had no levels in anything resolving that. He had profession doctor, max ranks in heal, which is not a rogue skill, you know. It's like one of the very few that isn't. There might have been, I know we had a druid who did not hang around very long. It, it bears mentioning that of the 13 people that started, I think the campaign ended with six. A lot of those players flaked off quickly. Uh, we were flaking off party members. By the end, we, we definitely kept the half-dragon and the elvish secret agent. Well, they were the uh, main characters. Right. We certainly also had myself and Josh. So we had, the, we had the two rogues, even though one of them was not at all a rogue. He was just a scoundrel. Um, and we had the doctor... I should mention that when we were in town, uh, whenever we had to interact with our with our mysterious benefactor, this gray wizard, uh, the DM would always talk in this kind of voice. It was I actually can't even produce a voice as nasal as he was able to, but everyone uh, his brow was certainly furled like this whenever he spoke, and every single NPC, be they a bartender, a farmer on the road we were passing, had this same condescending nature 
Orc. And was totally just completely, uh, what's the word? It starts with an X. Exhausted. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it starts with an E-X. Not exhausted. Um, what's the... Exasperated. Exasperated. Totally exasperated uh, with the party deigning to interrupt whatever important peasant business they were attending to <laughs> to ask them cabinet. a question. So, for example, we come out, we're walking through some caves, I'm sure we fought some monsters in the classic D&D, you know, low-level sense, and we emerged in a large hollow area illuminated by, fung- by, by bioluminescent fungi stuck to the ceiling. And it was so bright that it was like the light of day, because there were, like, farmlands with grain and everything, and, like, regular old... No, I don't live underground, why would you ask peasant? Who we passed on the side of the road, and we're like, hey, peasant! Why is the why is the ceiling lit up? And he's like, "What are you people, idiots? It's the bioluminescent fungi." <laughs> we went to a shop to ask, or we we found a settlement, and we went to a shop. And I think we tried to shop for some material with money we had gotten from the monsters that we killed. You know, it was one of those spiders with gold in their stomach type of situations. And uh, we don't have that here. What's wrong with you people? Are you all stupid or something? This gave rise to the perception on the part of the party that NPCs were just not something we wanted to interact with anymore. They were just no fun. They were really goddamn annoying. And ever since then, we've referred to this as the Pumpkin School of NPC Design, where all NPCs, A, have one voice, B, one personality, C, that voice and personality are each the square root of the most annoying character possible, so that D, players won't want to interact with them and you don't have to do it anymore. Because I think that he just really did not want to have to play those NPCs for us, you know what I mean? He wanted this to be a straight dungeon crawl hack and slash, so I don't know why he disposed us into a field full of subterranean pretentious peasants, but that's neither here nor there. At a certain point, we were teleported to a dark room. <laughs> it was basically that abrupt. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> so we were teleported to a dark room, and it was one of those like it was one of those scenes where there's a light casting on us from the ceiling, but we can't see anything else. No walls, no floor, no nothing. We're just in a black, undefined space. I think mysteriously, our wizard was suddenly absent. He did not get teleported to the dark room with us, so we knew we were on our own, right? We're in a dark room. The DM describes to us this dark room. And I think that there was, like, you know what? I don't think any disembodied voices even talk to us yet. So, the wizard in the uh, party... We have a cliche left. The the lesser wizard... (laughs) Says, oh, we're in a dark room. I cast magic missile at the darkness. Some people are born to a purpose. Like, gold farming. Or... Knitting Avengers characters into blankets. Or subservience. (laughs) But there are some other people whose scope in life is much more limited. Like, as a five-year-old, a shaman once told them, at a certain point in your life, someone will walk up to you and say, the rain is always blue on Tuesday. And when they say that, you find the nearest cliff and you you jump off it, son. You jump off that cliff swan dive style, and you will save the world. Well, the moment when our DM was to save the world was when somebody in a dark room that he had run announced that they were casting Magic Missile at the darkness because he practically jumped over the table with glee and said, Really? Because I have a plan for that! 
And that that wizard backpedaled hard. He was like, no, 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 I do not cast magic missile, I do not attack the darkness, I do not even menace the darkness with my wand. Darkness and I are totally cool, we are bros. <laughs> and that was another trope that became a trope for the, the God RPG Club. Really? Because I have a contingency for that! <laughs> when a DM has planned for an asinine situation, and that asinine situation transpires. Anyway... And then I think a disembodied voice started talking to us. One thing led to another. We got handed a masterwork version of all of the weapons that we had been carrying around. Which, by the way, in the case of the Doctor, was a thing that counted as a quarterstaff, but was actually a two-bar stretcher. So we got a masterwork roll-up stretcher quarterstaff <laughs> for plus one to attack, because shut up. That was, that was plus one to attack, not damage, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I think we got shunted off to a more coherent storyline, because I think the DM was sick of trying to have us find our way across his treasure map in a sandbox, and we were deposited in a much more linear series of events. See, at least you got things. Yes. We were... Uh, uh, Masara was apparently fairly low magic. I don't know if this is a thing, or if this is a thing that we were doing. Uh, which is fine. You know, that's an entirely reasonable way to do a campaign, even in D&D, as long as you make certain, uh, what's the word I want? Concessions? Thank you. Concessions for it. Our DM did not. There's an assumption that players will have a certain amount of fundage to get themselves some armor and weapons and wands and rope that never ends because it's made of troll intestines. I'm not making this up. It's called troll gut rope. And, you know, any number of things that you can do. Eternal shock, the list goes on, and I'll do it. Signal arrows, cages, portable cranes, powders. Three-handled moss-covered family credenza. Exactly. But that was actually in a third-party splat book, so it wasn't allowed. The point is that you're (laughs) supposed to have the money to buy these things, in addition to things like staying at an inn or curing your spider bites. If you don't have money, not so much. Eventually, the DM said, okay, fine. Probably somewhere in the in the back of his head said, at some point I have to give them magic. Or they'll shoot me. Because half of them are trained with guns. Uh, the players and the characters. <laughs> so we ended up with, among us, a plus one quarterstaff and a plus one dagger. Neither of which really helped our fighter. Or our bard, who was an archer. Or a druid. Or a rogue. Druid couldn't even use the quarterstaff? Uh, the druid was g- good at scimitar. Uh. So we ended up with a... I think we ended up with a quarterstaff on our illusionist and just a dagger. <laughs> to like, I don't know, plus one open envelopes. <laughs> but that was everything we had in the party by that point. We were all looking around going, we are in danger. And that inspired the fighter, who the uh, same Zagnut uh, Ziggurat fighter. So his intelligence level scaled rapidly over the course of this campaign. Around level four, he saw the writing on the wall and went up to the DM and said, I want to write a prestige class. DM said, I'm fine with you doing work. So he wrote it, and he said, this class is explicitly broken. It's very powerful. But by golly, if you look at it in the context of this campaign, it puts me up to the level of Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) And the DM approved it. We're like, he is on to something. (laughs) He called it the Living Shield. His job was to tank. Everybody else's job was to stand behind him. We were bad at our job. <laughs> I think we also got ourselves a magic shield, but it was from an ancient tomb for some long-dead hero, and our job was to actually give it to someone. We promised someone we would get them a shield. They funded us. 
We went to a dungeon. On our way there, someone else came up and said, you know what would be great if you gave us that shield and we'll fund you even harder. And we, when we got the shield, we spent a solid hour and a half at the table discussing what to do with it. It got heated as we decided, okay, do we do the thing we said we were going to do or the thing that gives us greater profit? And the DM, I remember the look on his face, and I cannot accurately represent it over the podcast, but I'm going to try. And he had that look for about an hour and a half, because there was nothing he loved more than watching the players argue, because it meant they were invested. It means that these other players are my ride home, and I can't just leave. That's what it means. That was, discussion is good. When the players sit around in Cosmic Accountant for uh, seven weeks and decide (laughs) what they want to do, they make steps along this way. They don't just faff about. There There is progression. And there's also, every once in a while, someone just sitting down and saying, we're not getting anywhere. Let's make a decision. Or don't, and just do two things. Because we have two people, and we can go in two different ways at one time. We'd be conditioned not to do that in this campaign. No, there was nothing more exciting than sitting back and not having to plan this hour and a half of a session. Because they're gonna fight. Wow. I learned something about myself that day. I learned that my arms are shorter than the desk behind which the DM was hiding. But also, that arguing for the sake of arguing is a terrible... Terrible strategy. Was there a good campaign that like you were both in that has a good like bad story from? Never. You we both? have never both been in a good campaign. We've never I mean, both been in a campaign together at all, except, except for... the one Dave ran. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was yeah, that was a subtle dig at Dave. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really the only thing we've done together. You know, I was talking. That's remarkable. Well, we're, we're always DMing for the other. I know. We are career DMs. I was talking up. Uh, I guess we're not paid. It's like being career homeless. So, so actually, the only then the only two campaigns you've played in together have been my campaigns. Then, oh right, yeah, Dirt, the, the Savannah City. Greyhawk campaign. Yeah, I thought that was originally that's that, that's what we were, what talking, we were about. talking about. Yeah, I was talking about the little Asian thing with the uh, where I was. It was like uh, a four shot. That's racist. It was three. It was only three sessions. Yep. Oh. The um, and for the second one, I, I researched the hell. I out think of we that. were missing a play. I remember. <laughs> I'm like, can I be from Korea? Well, then I'm going to be from Britain. Um, But that does remind me, that's why I signed up for the Mastara campaign. Because it was pitched as second edition. Like, this is a thing I haven't done. And then while we were prepping for the campaign, we took a vote. And everybody but me and the DM picked third. So it was very clear that the DM wanted to run a second edition campaign, and by God, he was going to do it! No matter what the rules said. Another good advice for DMs out there. Don't hold votes. Ever. This is not a democracy. It's a republic. Everybody has voted you to be in charge, and that means you can put pork wherever you want. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, it's true. Optionally, like, it's also a theocracy. Sometimes you... If everyone is there for a game that you're DMing, you know, presumably they either A, know you, and know what they're getting into... Or B, they've gotten into something without knowing what they're getting into, and they deserve what they get. Now, I could crack his knuckles. That's not that one didn't come out. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's not to say you can't have discussion. Oh sure. What level do you guys want the campaign to be? Too yeah. bad. 
How much? But magic? since everybody wants it to be at twenty, and I want it to be at three, we're not going to put it at three because no one's going to be happy. I yeah, see no I, reason we can't scale it to ten. I think the caveat there, and you have a strong philosophy of like the most important thing is that everyone at the table has fun. Yes, role playing is a modifier of game. Games are meant to be fun or golf. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. We went through some stuff after we teleported to the dark room. I remember that at one time we uh, were in a swamp and we had a tower. There was something at the top of that tower that we needed. We were like, okay, this is going to be a, an old fashioned, like, legitimate dungeon crawl. It wasn't a huge tower. We could see the whole thing from where we were camped out. You know, it was just, it was just a single keep in the middle of the swamp. The point is, we were like, let's not do this stupid like we've done everything else in this campaign stupid. We're going to spend the night, we're going to like work out as a party like our exact strategy for how we're going to get in there. We're going to, you know, the, the spellcasters are going to prep spells and we're going to do this right and proper. So we went to bed. Elvish secret agent, he always took watch because he didn't have to sleep. So naturally, as soon as the rest of us were asleep, he fitted up his gear and soldiered off to go solo the tower while we were asleep. I am not even making this up. This is might be the worst player action I've actually ever seen in a campaign. I mean, we had... And I want to point out that Blake was in a campaign where he nearly triggered a nuclear strike on the rest of the party. When was that? When you killed the police chief in modern Tokyo. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's right. This action still wins. <laughs> I, was, I just want you to understand his full meaning. <laughs> I ran a campaign where one member of the party deliberately cut off another member of the party's arm because he thought it was funny. Anyway, so this guy sets off to solo the tower. However, he has to make a stealth check. Sorry, he has to make a move silently check. Third edition. To get out of there without waking the rest of us up. Well, naturally... We all slept, you know, we all rolled, and then we all opposed it with our listen check, modified with a minus 20 for being asleep. Elf didn't roll particularly well. Obviously, he was quite good at move silently. Ah, it was one of those nat 20 wins things, because I remember we had a long argument about it, because Garrett, the halfling, rolled a natural 20. Secret Agent Elf's argument was, but his natural 20 plus his modifier did not meet my move silently check. Whereas the DM responded, natural 20 auto succeeds. Was that a rule in 3rd edition? Nope. Nonetheless, it happened. And it was probably uh, uncharacteristically good taste on the DM's part because he wanted, you know, he was hoping that the halfling would be like, hey man, don't do that and wake everyone else up. But he underestimated the deviousness of my roommate Josh, who decided it would be much funnier <laughs> to pretend he was still asleep. So Secret Agent Elf... Rolled his perception, or no, it was sense motive. His sense motive against Garrett's bluff. And that was, of course, you know, devastating failure. So he did not realize that the halfling had detected his departure and he headed off towards the tower. Then the halfling got up after he was a earshot and followed him up there. Having gotten, so basically the rest of us just sat there and spectated this entire session as these two people tried to do this whole tower. Well, they weren't going to just go in the front door by themselves. So they scaled the outside wall of the tower and climbed up to the top where the boss fight was going to be. And there was a NPC, there was like a damsel in distress up there that they were that the job was to rescue. And I guess and it was funny because it was so much it was so much like a video game because walking up onto that tower was supposed to trigger the bad guy, 
you know, standing above the altar with a knife raised in the air, getting ready to sacrifice this virgin for his, like, dark ritual or whatever. So they climb up over the edge of the thing, and it's like, oh, well, uh, I guess you find him standing there getting ready to sacrifice his virgin for this dark ritual, and the rest of us are like, hmm, it's a good thing that uh, those guys snuck out tonight and we didn't wait till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Who does a dark ritual at 3 p.m.? <laughs> it's true. So, Secret Elf Man, Secret, A- Secret Elf Man jumps over the edge of the parapet and is like, Halt, fiend! Prepare to get thine ass kicked! Uh, to which the necromancer is like, I'm a solo monster designed for five of you. <laughs> to which Secret Elf replied, Ah, but I'm a self-important D&D player who min-maxes like a motherfucker and also overtly cheats. When the DM catches me cheating, I correct my sheet until he's not looking, and then I change it back to the way that I was cheating. So I'm actually able to survive this unreasonable onslaught for several turns, while the halfling, still unbeknownst to me, sneaks around the other side of the tower, crawls up over the wall, unties the girl, gets her to climb down that side of the wall, and then jumps down over after her. Uh, But anyway, that was... uh, I was... Even though I did not get to participate in that session at all... I was tickled at how much Secret Agent Elf's plans for the session were decimated <laughs> by everything. Uh, so that was pretty good. Speaking of killing someone, this was uh, the Mistara campaign was actually the campaign where I decided to uh, soft band Saver Dies. Because oh. I remember we were all on horses. We were all riding to a place. And then those guys we decided not to give the shield to came up with just like, ah, we're obviously evil. I'm like, that's enough reason for us. They're like, no, wait for it. Give us the shield, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. They might have even said, ah, every other word, like they were snarf or something. So they decided, we're going to fight you. Because we have bows and you don't probably. So they, you know, we fought at a distance. And I said, okay, I'm great at everything. I'm really not. I'm terrible at everything. I'm like, I'm going to just ride my horse up next to this guy. And I'm going to make life very difficult for him next round. Just, you know, wave my sword menacingly at him while the rest of my party hopefully shows up. Right after me was a spellcaster who went, Hold person. Hold person means you don't get a save. You do it every round on your turn. But that means that until my next turn, I was completely paralyzed and immobile. The next thing that happened was the person who went next to me went, who just looked at me, probably stroked his chin, held the top of my head, took out his mace, and teed off. Just straight up coup de gras. I had to be brought back from the dead. I'm like, all I did was walk. That was it. That was my problem. Walking. But I did at least get to control Skazia 3 for the rest of that encounter. The, uh, the campaign ended with Skazia 4 dead. But I always made sure to put Roman numerals. So, on the sheet, it didn't say, you know, Skazia, Skazia 2. It said Skazia-i. Skazia-i. Skazia-iv. Like, Skazia-v was next. And eventually, we're just going to make Diskaziam. <laughs> that was it. I'm like, at that point, clearly, Saber Dies are the devil's game, based on how much this DM enjoys them. So I will never do them. And I didn't. Until that one cleric did. And then I imploded her. And sent her to hell. <laughs> well, no, you didn't use implode, right? She used implode. You... Did I use destruction? Uh, I, I don't feel like you used the same spell she said. I know she did implode. I know that I, I'm quite confident. The that point that... is she went to hell. And not regular hell. Hell from the video game Doom. 
where she had to be broken out by an old man and a robot from the plane of elemental falsehood. So her day was great. The last thing that happened in the that first God RPG campaign, um, and this was one of our this was this was like me and me and that guy whenever we're together, we sometimes recount this story because this is one of our early favorite D and D stories. So. Uh, at a certain point, the D&D adventure module Pool of Radiance became the storyline. I know that we didn't start that way, but we certainly ended that way. We found ourselves in a, inside a large temple, a large enclosed temple that had tents inside it. So we were indoors, but then in, inside this, this very large room, there were other rooms, you know what I mean? Uh, sometimes fairly large. And it was controlled by a cult that had that wasn't like not everybody in this cult wears purple robes they actually have a substantial military presence and can fight battles and are you know well armed and armored and whatever so we found an appropriate number of people and choked them out and took their outfits and were sneaking around in the uniform and heraldry of this cult and they had so many people that they didn't necessarily recognize us as someone else so um the doctor and myself the thuggish fighter uh, walk into this tent, and I think we just randomly picked a tent. I think we didn't know where we like what we were going, so we walk through the door of this tent and turn around, and there's a desk with a guy sitting behind it who is obviously like the supreme commander of the situation going on over here. And I immediately notice that he is a good three paces away from his greatsword, my weapon of choice, uh, which is leaning up against the wall. So we walk through the door, and I'm immediately like, uh oh, and he looks up at us like, "What do you want?" So I rolled a bluff check, and was like, "And I got not a great bluff check." So it was a situation where I had to tell him something relatively believable, and my character wasn't supposed to be the sm- the sharpest tool in the shed. So I was like, "Uh, sir, we bring important news from the front, doctor." <laughs> and then the doctor looks at me, and you know, the player looks at me, and is like, "Okay," and he, you know, he's a rogue; he should know how to bluff. No ranks in bluff. He was a doctor. That's where those ranks went. So he rolled the d20. Clatter, clatter, clatter. Two. (laughs) So he looks at me. And then he looks at the commander. And he goes, "Uh, Yeah, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, okay, initiative. (laughs) This is a surprise round. And sure enough, that commander was, you know... We have important news from the front. Okay, I'm comfortable with this situation. Yeah, I got nothing. I don't understand what's happening here. Oh, I see. Your spies sent in here to... At that point, I was garroting him with a crowbar. (laughs) It was what I had handy. I had a crowbar on my belt. It came in useful many times. But the point is, I was like, man, oh man, I really need to choke this guy so he can't scream for help. Because it is swarming with goons outside, and we are not very many. So I ran around behind him. And I entered a grapple, and I made all the appropriate rolls for a grapple check, and I was like, okay, I make the appropriate roll to pin and to start hurting him with this garrote. There's rules for garroting someone, that you're supposed to use a wire, not a crowbar. But it was like, crowbar! Take that, you big thug. And then it was like, ah, you see, the thing is, I'm also a boss who was supposed to be able to fight your whole party. So, grapple checks, right? And I rolled grapple, and I rolled amazing! And he rolled grapple, and he rolled terrible. And he almost got away. 
And I was like, Doctor! So the doctor is like, oh right, pull out my plus one dagger. By the way, we got a plus one dagger nobody wanted too. Awesome. And runs up there and it's like, sneak attack, sneak attack, sneak attack. Because I've got the guy pinned, he's denied his dexterity bonus. The fight, the, 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 the rogue can just sit there and be like, hmm, my entire full attack, sneak attacking every time, just stabbing him in the guts. Prison- drop a box of bowling trophies, eat sneaks attacks. Prison <laughs> style is- shanking as I'm sitting there with him in a full Nelson. Within a full Nelson holding a crowbar across his neck. So we roll against each other once, and he almost gets away. We roll against each other twice, and he almost gets away. We roll against each other a third time, and I did not roll a number that started with one. He breaks free. And he's already taken substantial damage. So I was behind him. Uh, As previously mentioned in this story, three paces behind him was a greatsword. So I took two paces... Grabbed said greatsword from the wall and attacked him on my next initiative. Because, you know, he he spent his whole turn breaking out on his initiative. It turns out that that particular greatsword was one of those burst greatswords. I think it did lightning damage. So I swung at him and I critted him and cut him in half with a giant (laughs) clap of thunder. Alerting everyone else to the fight. Yeah, but at least you won your fight. (laughs) I reversed one. I remember when the terrible, terrible Masara campaign ended... And there's a reason we don't call it the terrible, terrible, but salvage Misara campaign. <laughs> we were going into the jungle on a boat. The boat eventually got stuck on the ground. Uh, so we had to get out and we had to explore the jungle. And we were there for reasons. I think we were going for uh, an ancient temple to collect more ancient hero artifacts. And we came across some cat people. And they're giant kitty cats. And the cat people are like, Halt! We're going to fight you! And we're like, have we tried... Negotiation. Why always the fighting? And they're like, no, 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 we're designed for combat. So, the six of us are there. Druid, fighter, rogue, a bard whose claim to fame is uh, getting a crit with a bow one time for triple damage, and he did three. A half-cleric, half-fighter, and the illusionist. Okay, the illusionist survived. That's weird. I'm used to that guy dying in every campaign. Um, also a snake. Well, yeah, Skaziyev was there. Skaziyev. There we go. These cats were terrifying. They had pounce, which meant that when they, as they approached you, they attacked you five times. Then when they just stand there, they attack you five times. I'm like, this is, this is unsustainable. (laughs) Now, at this point, I had the monster manual memorized. Because I got the monster manual before I first picked up dice. And I'm seeing these tigers we're fighting, and I'm going, those tigers are CR7. Our party is seven people. There are two of those tigers. Plus nine catman. And we have no magic. Huh. So the illusionist said, Alright, it's time to go Super Saiyan on this. I'm going to bring out the big guns. Major image. I can create something about this big. You know, in ten foot cubes. You know what's about that big? A twenty foot tall fire elemental. Complete with sound and heat. Everything. So he basically just turned and went, Bro. And a fire elemental burst from the ground with, like, you know, Carmina Barana in the background. The the first movement. And just turned to the cats and basically went, You! And the DM's like, The cats are going to get a will save. Illusionist went, actually, they don't. 
They fully believe it until they interact with it. DM's like, nope, they're smarter than normal cats. Like, they're really not. They're just, they're just larger. It's like, nope, good enough. Alright. One of them doesn't believe it at all. He's like, okay, completely ignore. Go for wizard. I'm like, cause that's what cats do. Uh, go for the wizard. The other one fully buys into it, and he is slightly cowed. He will not approach closer to that fire elemental, but he will still go around and kill everyone. And at that point, we knew the campaign was not salvageable. <laughs> the DM was just trying to make it a TPK so that he could feel better about ending it. It had already gone to every other week. I know, because my campaign ran in the between weeks in the same room. I think we ended with half the party dead, including Skaziaev, who I basically picked up bodily and hurled at the tiger so that I couldn't be charged And then, while I ran into the jungle. So we got back. We said, okay. So now they know we're on the island. Most of our crew is dead. Our boat is beached. We can't get it out. We have to get our allies back, and we still don't even know where we're going. Huh. We broke for the week, and the next week the DM said the campaign's uh, not continuing. Like, well. I had forgotten the story of how that campaign ended. End is I, a strong word. Well, I, re- I think end is a strong enough word for that. It didn't end as well as pushing daisies. It did not conclude. It ended like Clone High. How about that one? Okay. It's still an ending. <laughs> I still call that the end of Clone High as I growl. So that's how bad play works. Yeah. That's, actually, that's probably going to be our last story about terrible campaigns or, or otherwise bad players and bad DMing because well everything else is awesome from here on out right well, it's more just that it's not a good story failure isn't funny America's funniest home videos and all of MTV <laughs> I don't I mean you know maybe it's just because of the nature of the way my memory works but I mostly remember the good stuff like I mean even even like epic party like screw jobs like the uh, time uh, Sean stole that shield or, uh, that was magnificent. You shut your filthy mouth. What? It was an epic party screw job. It was awesome. It the point is was... that eventually you guys won. Right. You right. can get a lot. You can get away with a lot of screwing as long as the good guys eventually win. Mm-hmm. That's why people are fine with JBL's reign and not about Triple H's reign. <laughs> the Asia campaign. Right. I had players torture a ninja to death for fun. I think it was player. It was every player but you. You know what's funny? Because <laughs> you were there that week. No, I was. I was there. Oh, then you're responsible. I. I didn't do due diligence in objecting. Yanni, uh, first they came for the ninjas, and I did not say anything because I was not a ninja. Then they came for the pretentious uh, gnome heritage carrying hopping vampires. And I thought, that's awfully specific. (laughs) (laughs) That might just be me. (laughs) That was part of the problem of that campaign. Yes. Part of. (laughs) No, it was was Norse war god and, like, crazy evil summoner that was doing the torturing. Yeah, I I do want to point out that Yanni got turned into a vampire that moves only by pogo stick. And he both gained and deserved the best ending. You could probably do a cast about how you usually hate your players. I've noticed that you have a lot more my players are such terrible people stories where I have more our party overcame Heiko's bullshit stories. It's not that my players are terrible people. It's that 
they do terrible things. <laughs> my my players are well, the... Uh, Joanna's causing structural damage in the other room. It's fine. <laughs> we just have more stuff around uh, yeah. than normal for the moment. So you said your players are... Yeah, my players are the operative from Firefly. Mm. They do bad, bad things for good purposes, which are the end of this campaign, I guess. <laughs> I gotta say that I don't think that the tower campaign applies. All the people who did bad things in the tower campaign, including the players who won, didn't really do it for a good reason. The players who won were evil, evil, hyper-evil, evil, and willing to put up with that for everyone else. Yeah. Like, that was the alignment spread. Because we got rid of the necromancer. <laughs> they were the ones who didn't eat their party members anymore. <laughs> I never digested a party member. No, that's because you were too busy being the digestive system for a party member. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> well, um, yeah, is there anything you guys want to plug? Any, uh, anything? My phone in, because it's low. Alright. <laughs> Hang on. Anything you think the, uh, the listeners should check out? By the time this posts, I'll probably have the Reaper Bones minis in. Oh, you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and plug that, because I, I might as well do that at some point. Um, that Reaper minis... As, a, as an owner of a game store, I get to see some, but not all, of the, like, behind-the-scenes operation of the gaming industry, which is an unusually transparent industry, because all of our, everyone who works for in it is also a player. And I've had, you know, I've gotten to see the different way that different distributors and manufacturers deal with stores and deal with customers and things of that nature. And, uh, absolute king, top of the heap, best people in gaming of which I am aware, a Reaper Miniatures. In the industry. In the industry. You're not a member of the industry yet. I have a blog. You're a consumer. <laughs> You're a consumer and a critic. Mm. Mm. While everyone else in the, like, miniatures... In, Reaper makes miniatures. I mean, they do some other stuff. Like, they, they have paint. And I'm sure their paint is good. They do t-shirts. They do objectification of women. They're in many businesses. Uh, they have their thumbs in many pies. Yeah, they have, a, they have a miniature combat game that presumes to compete with the likes of Warhammer and War Machine. In the same way that bowling competes with um, Jersey Shore. Okay. Their max stat is clearly in morality. Uh, and I totally respect that. Because it's actually stat in wrestling games. <laughs> Um, but they've got, where, where everyone else is like, oh man, the price of pewter has quadrupled. I guess we get to charge huge amounts of money for our miniatures and like, you know, the likes of Games Workshop just keep raising prices. The likes of, uh, War Machine, who bragged they would never, ever make plastic models. Our game is metal, because our game is for men. Yay! Manly men. And manly men make metal miniatures. And alliterate. And, uh... <laughs> In the background, there's an explosion going off while a guy just screams, Yeah! And now everything they make is plastic and resin. Oh. <laughs> Reaper Mini was like, Man, price of pewter keeps going up. But if we raise the price on our minis, then our minis will cost more than they're worth. How can we solve this problem? I know. Let's spend a whole lot of our own money and crowdsource with people to invent a form of plastic that we own the rights to that we can actually manufacture minis in and it does every job that people who want to buy beautiful miniatures need the mini to do. And is cheap. So we can buy things for like, you know, $2 for a man-sized mini as opposed to Games Workshop, which I think now charges a minimum of 18 Yeah. 
Yeah, we saw Pacific Rim yesterday. Oh, I want to see that movie so bad. It was, it was way more than I expected. Yeah. That's, it, it I'm, I'm not looking for a great movie. But well, I... I I expect. I paid to see Hellboy two in theaters. Hunting so. giant monsters. If you go in then, expecting that, then you will be pleased. I know. Awesome. If you if you expect any amount of acting, you will not be pleased. No. If you expect That's little fine. acting, which means that there's not much bad acting because there's not much acting at all, you will be pleased. Look, the greatest giant robot thing I've ever seen is Big O. The second greatest is Die Guard. Which is a show about aliens that invaded. So humans built a giant robot to fight them. And then as soon as the robot was done, the aliens mysteriously went away. And now they're like, well, we just have a giant robot. What do we do with it? (laughs) So it's like their mascot. They rent it out to fairs and things like that. And 20 years later, the aliens come back. So they're like, finally, we can do this. We kept training people in this robot just in case. And they go out and find us like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But you can't use the giant laser because that's expensive. It is a show about mecha combat interweaved with a show about the accounting for mecha combat, <laughs> and it is gorgeous. What about Gurren Lagann? What about Gurren Lagann? I'm just surprised it didn't make your top two. Because it's not a show about mechas. It's a show about, yeah! Okay, fair That right. happens to do it through mechas. In the same way that Evangelion is a show about, oh, that happens to do it through mechas. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, where everyone else in the industry has been try- has been like, well, we have to find a way to make money somehow. Let's see if we can come up with some tricky way to take it out of the consumer's hide. Only Reaper was like, let's cut costs. For that, I will always respect them. Even though, despite the fact that on that Kickstarter project, I'm, I'm basically paying the top level of contribution where you don't get a model made in your likeness. And I'm at the end of the list to have my stuff shipped because they have to put it in retail packaging. I looked online... It doesn't come out of the molds in retail packaging. I know it doesn't, but the point is, today, I looked at their site where they show what they shipped, and they shipped one order to Great Britain. Now, what they probably did is package everyone who who kickstarted in Great Britain into one box and sent it there to be redistributed locally. (laughs) But the point is... They're shipping the international people before the Undertakers. I thought we would be in front of that. But, uh, yeah. Well, it's part of their marketing strategy. Now everybody has all their bones, and they're like, Hey, everybody, look at all the bones I have. And, uh, you know, Consumer Frank is like, Man, I wish I had bones. Instead, I'm just a pile of jelly. And you're like, Aha! Now that everybody has seen all the great bones out there, like the tibia, I will sell them in packaging, labeled with things like tibia. (laughs) Because <laughs> it comes with signage too Yeah So you can actually arrange them Like a normal skeleton Put the feet at the top And the head at the bottom <laughs> Some skeletons work differently than yours. <laughs> From the southern hemisphere That's how it works So Bones Aces Reaper's awesome Hike of anything You wanna I like my bones My bones are great Well except for this leg But I'm not convinced that's bones Alright Well thank you guys for coming again Hey Thanks for having us This podcast is fully copyrighted by its hosts. Visit us at podcastmagicmissile.com. I Podcast Magic Missile, attacking the darkness since 2012. conversation I didn't know the details of. <laughs> <laughs> it's
It's like watching a session of Apocalypse World. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Roll hard, K. K. Clap, clap. <laughs> <laughs>